Well, this morning, our message title is Preparing Us for the Journey. And the journey is a, we're going to find out, is a a particularly significant journey. It's a a pivoting point or a pivotal point uh, in the context of the plagues that we have been studying. You have, we've seen that we had three repetitions of three plagues. Well, now we've uh, talked last week a little bit about the 10th plague. And this week, we're going to see that God is going to start to do something that is so big and significant. It moves out of this repetition of these three cycles into his, ne- his next great work of salvation. It's truly a journey that he is taking them on. And it's something that we can relate to as far as journeys. We understand uh, that uh, let's, whenever we take a journey, uh, more than one day, or it's something that's going to be an overnight bag at least, that there's preparation, there's things that we need to do to prepare for it. And how many of us have gotten to our destination and realized we forgot the jacket, we forgot the toothbrush, we forgot the coat, if you're camping and you forget the toilet paper, that's a really bad thing. Well, I've done all of those things. It's, it's, you realize when you get to your destination that you have forgotten something. You're like, oh, this is going to cost me something. I don't want to forget. Well, it's interesting. God knows we are creatures that have fallen minds that forget. God is constantly out of his graciousness telling, telling us, remember, remember, remember. Well, God is is doing a work today that we will see that he is going to order the Israelites' journey. Really, it's a journey of salvation, and really it's a journey we can relate to as we remember that the Israelite physical journey is 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 a representation of our spiritual journey, what God has done in the New Covenant, in, in, in the, our exodus out of the uh, penalty and the power of sin over us. The, they are leaving the exodus of the offense, uh, excuse me, the, the oppression that uh, Pharaoh is doing, but it represents something much greater in life. So when we read this, we need to make these connections so that we can see, that we can remember, so that when God is giving these steps, and that's what he's doing today, he's giving the, the initial steps on, I'm giving these people an understanding of salvation. They're going to go through it they're going to experience salvation, and I want them to never forget this because they are a forgetful people, and I love them enough to remind them. So I'm going to put things in place that will make it so that they can't forget as long as they're following what I've given them. So it's a, it's a beautiful picture. If you will take your um, sermon outline, which is on the back page of the bulletin today. I want to make sure, as we always do with the takeaway, you can see we only have two points this week, um, but we have sub-points under, uh, under each point, but the takeaway is really what we focus on at the beginning of the sermon to make sure that we get it. And so our takeaway today is God prepares us for the journey of salvation by memorializing, by, by bringing structure to the memory process, or the, uh, the recalling process, His saving grace in time, in other words, he creates a structure with an entrance into time, and we'll see that, and allowing us to experience the reality and the cost of it, of it, that is, of salvation, 
uh, through a meal. So we're going to see the significance of a meal as well. My hope is today, if some of you are like me, I like biblical theology. And you might go, does that just mean reading the Bible? No, it means more than that. Biblical theology is the big picture. It's the overarching picture. It's the idea of, of what is God's big plan where am I now in that plan? Where do I... Okay, we're here. We're starting with uh, Exodus. Uh, we're in Exodus today, so we're really at the beginning. So we're way over here. What does it look like? How do I fit into it? If you're reading, and the, the, the challenge is, in our devotional times, uh, in, uh, every morning, we, we read chunks of Scripture. We only have so much time. And we ponder it, we meditate on it, and we pray over it. But sometimes we, can, we, we, we only read at this level, boots on the ground. And we don't know how it fits in there. And so we forget it more easily. If we understand where it is in the big picture, all of a sudden it becomes anchored to our understanding. So we're going to do a little bit of that today. And I'm I'm hoping that we will understand and walk away with this with an idea of, okay, I have a better understanding of God's plan of salvation, where we are now and how it relates to me, where we are now in, in the sermon and how it relates to me. So with that, let's take a look at um, a new beginning in time, and in particular, what God is bringing about in regards to the birthing of a nation. That's what we're dealing with here in chapter 12, is the birthing of a nation. In fact, if you can, you're really going to see that this idea of birthing starts here. Um, now, the growing in the womb has been a long time coming, but this is the birthing process starting at 12, and we're going to see all the way to the uh, to the point where they get to Mount Sinai and receive the, the law. That it's at the law, excuse me, it's at Mount Sinai that we see that that act of saying, this is how I'm going to relate to you, that's what the law is, that that is the, the completion of the birthing process, and now they officially become a nation that understands their God and can follow their God. So this journey out of Egypt all the way to Sinai that whole process is the birthing process, but the birthing process starts now. And uh, you women that have had long uh, uh, births, um, uh, how do I say this? I'm, I'm losing the words. Labor. labor, thank you. You can appreciate thinking, oh my goodness, what a long labor this would be. Um, and it is. And it's, it's a beautiful thing, though, because you see the beauty of God. God even identifies himself in Scripture through the metaphors of motherhood, of birthing. And it's a beautiful thing. We understand our God, and men, particularly men that are, are married, we can understand that our wives give us their understanding of a passage, and it helps us realize, I would never have thought about that. I'm a man. I was thinking of it from a man's perspective. And we see the value of the women. And so when, when we see God use even metaphors of, of a woman, though we refer to God as he, as a, prone, as a male masculine pronoun, we understand what he's doing. He's giving us a better understanding of what's going on. So let's keep that in mind as we read this. Let's start with uh, Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Uh, Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. In the land of Egypt? No, duh, we've been there. The whole time of Exodus. Moses, you lose your thought? Why did you have to put in in the land of Egypt? Because Moses is clarifying. The law didn't start at Mount Sinai. The law starts here from a sense of, I'm giving you uh, rules, precepts, regulations, whatever, you, how, whatever terminology is, help, is most helpful for you to, on what to do 
to, uh, to put into place so you don't forget. And so in this sense, he's making sure they understand the laws actually precede Sinai. They start here, as far as it goes to the nation. We have our earlier laws in Scripture, but this is specific to uh, Israel as a nation. So we continue on. Verse 2. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. I find it fascinating. The Hebrew word there, the beginnings, is the head of months. Get a visual in your mind. It's about a birthing process. Now, you could take that too far because uh, beginnings is always head no matter what you're talking about it. But in reading this, I'm thinking, well, that's kind of a beautiful picture. This, this is the birthing of the nation. He, he, this month shall be for you the beginnings of months. It shall be the first month of the year. So here we see the calendar year is being reset. Whatever you observed before, because you weren't a nation, you were the family of God, but you weren't a nation. And you probably adopted the pagan nation's understanding of the calendar, and which is incredibly tied to all of their pagan, their idolatry and, um, uh, and celebration of it. No more. This is a completely distinct, separate calendar. Wash your minds of what you knew before is what he's saying. I am, giving, I am doing something new to create change in your thinking about your, what's before you each year. So listen to this. This is from uh, a quote from a, uh, this is from Nahum M. Sarna. I give you his whole name because I, I really enjoy this commentary because he is a Jew who is not a Christian. Well, we're in the Old Testament. I always want to hear how a Jew participates, or excuse me, uh, understands this, comprehends this. And then I already know from a, a Christian perspective how we engage it. Listen how this falls short. He's, he's right on track, but there's a critical word he misses here. Listen to what his commentary says about these first two verses. The impending exodus of Egypt is visualized as the start of a wholly new order of life. I'm tracking with you dead on. That is to be dominated by, and I, I agree with him, we're going to miss one word here, but listen to how he describes it. It's going to be dominated by the consciousness of God's active, active presence in history. Absolutely. God's active presence in history. God said by way of the second person of the Trinity, the angel of God, way back at the, the burning bush, and he tells Moses, when we do this exodus, I'm with you. I'm with you, as, with you particularly, but you as the representative of the people. I am going to take this, this exodus, this salvation is going to be in the presence of me. I am the one that's bringing it about. I am the one who's going to be in your presence. So we, he's right when he says this, but he misses it. He sees it only as a new chapter of history. He misses the word. Let me read you this, the last part of it. We would say by way of the Christian perspective. Uh, in fact, I'll say, read the whole thing again. The impending exodus out of Egypt is visualized as the start of a wholly new order of life that is to be dominated by the consciousness of God's, and important word to put in there, a modifier, salvific or saving active presence in history. That's what we're seeing. God's saving active participation, his presence in it. When I say participation, he's the one leading. He's the father holding the hand of his nation or his, his firstborn son as he refers to this nation and is mo moving this, this nation through salvation. It's a beautiful picture. But one of the things we, we grasp here, more specifically as we dig down, because we're dealing with time here, being the head of a new mo of, of months, being the restarting of the calendar, is the idea that Yahweh is now in charge of their time. 
According to scripture, they have been oppressed by Egypt for 400 years. They have been slaves. Who's in control of every moment of the slave's life? It's going to be Pharaoh. They eat, they drink, they labor. Everything is dictated by what Pharaoh says. And so now we have a bigger concept of understanding that Yahweh, their true, one true God, has said, it's time. I have come to take the lead in this salvation, to make it possible. I am the one that is going to change in the sense of your thinking. I am in control. I have been in control. It probably didn't look like I was in control. I told Moses, excuse me, I told Abraham way back before this ever occurred, the 400 years previous, that you would be oppressed. But you may have come to a point where you thought, is he really in control? Is this oppression ever going to stop? And God is reminding him, I have chosen to act now, and you will see that I am in control. And I can't help but wonder, how many of us, as we look at our work week, today's kind of a give me, and it's easier for us to realize that God's in control. We come together as a people to worship God. But Monday comes, Monday through Friday comes, do we act as though God, Yahweh, is in control? And I'm speaking of our attitudes. Or do we act more like Pharaoh is still in control? Listen to what one commentator says about this. He says, what a monumental change happens in a person's life when God is in charge of one's time instead of Pharaoh. This is what salvation should look like. And for some of us, this is a rebuke or at least an an encouragement that, oh, wow, I've slipped into thinking about Pharaoh as being the one who governs my, my time. He says this, what a moment, monumental change happens in a person's life when God is in charge of one's time instead of Pharaoh. And he's going to keep doing two words. One word is the new way of thinking, uh, where God is in charge, and then he's going to give you the old way of thinking when Pharaoh's in charge. And there's four of these in repetition. Expectation replace, replaces resignation. Hope replaces numbness. Rhapsody, which, by the way, if you are like me and you don't use that word very often, can't think of the last time I generated that word in my conversation. I need a little help with the definition. When it says rhapsody, it means an elated bliss or an enthusiasm. So rhapsody replaces routine. Celebration replaces drudgery. Now, as I read those four words... Which series of words represent your thinking, your frame of mind, your attitude Monday through Friday? Is life a drudgery? Is it strictly just routine? You do, have you bought into the, ah, it's the weekend that will bring me great, great pleasure. I can get away from this. Or are, you, or are you walking in a sense of God is in control of my time. He is providentially working out his will in my time this week. And it's expressed through my attitude. These are the things that can, can get a hold of us and make changes. Do we look, do our, would our, with the people that we shoulder up next to against and whatever it is that we do during the week, whether you're uh, working, whether it's education, you're the, the student out there, or whether uh, you're in retirement and you're doing other different things, would the people know that you recognize that God the God who brings about expectation, the God who brings about celebration, rhapsody, that that God is in control of your time. I don't know. But it's a good challenge for us to place on our own lives to see where are we in this. Well, I, I've got to ask the question. Hopefully you've asked the same question. 
Why is resetting the calendar important to God? We've talked about it a little bit. The, it's the idea that he wants us to remember. He wants to cause us. I don't know about you, but I really like when God causes me because left to my own, I don't make a lot of progress in my tr- sanctification. God will get my attention by one way or another and remind me, Nick, uh-uh, you've fallen into routine. This week is for your sanctification. Are you changing? We get to see here that God causes his people to remember what he has done for them and his plan of salvation. Now think about this. Calendars order our time and our thinking or remembering. Think about this. How many of you have to reset your calendar every week? If you're married and you're not doing that, man, do you have chaos in your home? I have to sit there and ask my wife, okay, what do we got out in front of us next this week? Or my wife has to chase me down and say, Nick, give me a minute. Give me 10 minutes. We got to figure out what we're doing this week together or we're all over the map and we're not efficient at all. That's the idea of what God is doing here. He is ordering our lives according to the salvation he has intended. And he's allowing us to be ordered by this, this, this mechanism or this structure in our thinking. And we say, praise God. Because if I didn't have this, I'd be a mess. I wouldn't be, I would forget my God. And we don't want to do that. So let's, let's do this. I talked about biblical theology, the big picture of, of the plan of salvation. I want to challenge you for a second. I'm going to let it go silent in here and maybe even take a drink of water as you, as you ponder this. Could you, if I came to you at lunchtime and sat down next to you, which we're not doing this week because it's Father's Day, and hopefully you get a chance to enjoy your time with your families and friends, uh, recognizing what God has done in, in the family in your life. But if I were to sit down next to you and say, hey, can you give me a rundown? Give me the what happened in the plan of salvation. From chapter 12 of Genesis, which deals with God taking the nation, taking Abraham to make a nation out of him, all the way to where we're now in chapter 12 of Exodus. We just have one book that we've covered. Now, it's a lot, a lot of chapters. Uh, we've got the, 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 the totality of, of one book, if you think of it from 12 to 12. Um, it's actually two books. Um, could you tell me, okay, the... God did this in his plan of salvation. And if he can't, then praise God. He's given it to us in his word. And I'm here to help remind you so that today you can leave a little more encouraged to go, wow, I forgot some of those details. This, this, I get forgetful and details help me be encouraged on what God has done. So let's walk through some of this. So, we had the tower in chapter 11 of Genesis. You had the Tower of Babel. And what's the bad thing about the, cha- the Tower of Babel? God said, woo, woo, woo. We got everybody not spreading out over the face of the earth. We got everybody trying to go to one place, be unified in what they're doing, and they are escalating evil incredibly. This is, escalate, this is evil on steroids. And God says, who knows what they will be able to do? Now, he means that, not as if he doesn't know. He's saying, you put all these people together, and with the intent of their hearts... Uh, the evil of their hearts, and we will have evil expedited, and I don't want that for the people of God. I'm bringing about, I'm doing a work of salvation, and this is going to act in opposition of that. So what does he do in chapter 12? Ta-da! We've got Abraham. He takes Abraham, and he says, I'm calling you out of the nations, and I'm calling you to bring uh, your, your wife and you, uh, your uh, cousin, your nephew, excuse me, Lot, your nephew, 
um, to the promised land. I'm going to take you to the promised land. At the promised land, I will reveal more to you. So we see God to one day have offspring that he's going to make into enough of an offspring to become the nation. And he does one more thing in, in his covenant with Abraham. And when you think covenant, think God crashing in to the physical realm. He, cra- he goes from the invisible realm, crashes into the physical realm that we call earth, and he brings about and communicates graciously, I'm here, I, I am your God, this is how you will relate to me. And then we agree to relate to him that way. That's a covenant, a, a beautiful picture, hopefully, of a covenant. And you don't think of covenants as, oh, here comes God again. He's just given rules. Hey, this is a God that loves us enough to say, this is how you will engage with me, your maker, who is holy. This is, how, this will, this is what, how we will relate so we can't be hindered by the sin that is in your heart. So God is a gracious God when he intrudes, and, and I use that word because it, it gets our minds racing. God crashes through the invisible into the physical realm that he created, and he shares and he reveals and he tells us. And this is what we see here. He says one thing that is of particular importance for us today. He tells Abraham that this nation that I'm going to build of you, this nation is going to be a vehicle. It's going to be a means by which I'm going to bless all the nations. All of the people that were part of the Tower of Babel are spread out over the land, and, and, and they become the other nations. He has said, those are not my nations. I'm going to use you, Abraham. I'm going to raise you up into a nation. I'm going to bring my plan of salvation from this nation out to the world. And that's what we see God doing. So we have to understand that, okay, God is working by way of one man, and he's going to have enough offspring to bring about a nation. Uh, You might want to think about this. Excuse me. You might not have thought about this in the past. But ultimately, this nation was foolish, was disobedient, and yet one thing happened that was important. One particular thing of importance came from this nation. One particular thing is a person. This nation birthed our Savior, Jesus Christ. He was a Jew. He was a Hebrew. He was from the Israelite nation. <clears throat> Though the, the, the nation, <clears throat> oftentimes in history, when apostate, they went away from God, God was still faithful to use this nation to produce, to bring about the Savior that would save the world. In that sense, God's covenant that he made with the people, he kept, despite the nation failing in this area. In fact, the nation at the, crucif- at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is still crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And yet God used that as the means to bring about the salvation to the nations. God is incredible. Let us continue on with this understanding. I want to give you this big picture before we get to chapter 12 of, of Exodus here. <clears throat> Interesting. We've got Abraham in the promised land. We have Isaac in the promised land. We get to Jacob, in the, and we find out, er, Jacob leaves, go gets wives. We, he ha, goes gets a wife. It's supposed to be it. There's a bunch of trickery involved, and he ends up with two wives. Long story short, what we need to learn is, rather than uh, Abraham has one son, Isaac. Isaac has two uh, twin sons that, and, uh, with uh, Jacob and Esau. And then we see that Esau is, is the one that, that goes off on, on his own. Jacob, out of Jacob, the third and final patriarch comes 12 sons. Those 12 sons represent the nation, the tribes of the nation, 12 tribes that are going to make up the nation of Israel. 
key to our understanding because that'll, that, that's going to play out throughout Scripture. But what happens is they don't stay in the land. Those, God uses a famine. Now, we've got patriarch number one, Abraham, in the, in the promised land. All right, we're going great, God. Patriarch number two, Isaac in the promised land. Why are you moving the patriarchs out of the promised land if that's the land that you're going to bring them up in? And I will suggest to you, that land at that time is filled with the enemies of God. I mean, these are a perverted enemy that when they are become a nation, God goes in and says, judgment has come for them, and I will wipe them out. I will remove these people groups so that you will now possess the land of Canaan. They can't do that as a family. They go into that land as a family, and their enemies, they are, they are hostile to God, and these are God's people. They are possibly looking at annihilation. So when you think about the famine, what does God do? God takes the people of this nation that are too small in number to be a nation that will actually possess the promised land, and he parks them in Goshen, in a portion of Egypt that is the physical representation of the Garden of Eden. It's, an, it's, a, it's a land, all the rest of Egypt is very dry. It does have the river going through it, but this is where the, the, this is where the water comes to a place where the land is fertile for, for growing, for, for crops, for sustaining a people. This is where God chooses. In the, in the land of Goshen, if I could use this, this metaphor to help you see this, and women, you'll get this probably more so than men, Goshen becomes the, the womb where God grows up his firstborn son, which is a name that he gives the whole nation of Israel. He protects them by putting them in the womb of the greatest, most evil, most powerful nation, what an amazing God to do that because no other nation is going to try and defeat them because they're parked in the most powerful nation. And so we see there that God uses Goshen, this mini garden, as a representation. When we sit here, Goshen, and we hear that it's, it's a beautiful land, it's, it's lush, it's green, it's fertile, we, and all of a sudden we realize that this nation starts to multiply incredibly so. It's following the creation mandate that God gave Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, and they got fruitful and multiplied in Goshen. We're going to see that when the Exodus comes, we're talking that it, the Bible will tell us it's somewhere in the, in the, uh, in the place, excuse me, in the realm of 600,000 men are counted. 600,000 men. Most theologians agree that if you bring in children and, and women, two million living in the land of Goshen. How are you going to do that unless you have a perfect paradise setting to populate this? What is the very thing that, that terrifies the Egyptians? Two million Hebrews. Oh my gosh, they're going to turn on us and, and, and defeat us. And, and that's not God's plan to defeat them. He's going to move this nation to the, to the Canaanites, to, to Canaan. That's the promised land. But we see the beauty of what God is doing here. This isn't that, oh, oops, famine showed up. Gosh, God really isn't able to provide. No. When you have famine in your life, know that God is bringing about a sovereign will into your life, that he is doing something with that famine. God doesn't have any oops. There's nothing like that. So we start to see that God is doing, just like in the garden, you had a new creation in Adam and Eve. Now you're in paradise or the mini garden Goshen, and you have a 
new creation being born. This is the nation that is being born. This is his firstborn son. God has chosen the saving birth of this nation he called his firstborn son to memorialize in time and in their minds and in our minds, that's the minds of the saved people, the Israelites, the starting point of each year of their lives. Their starting point should always reflect back to this, the Exodus. This is the, the Exodus represents God's saving work. If we are always remembering, if, the, if our Exodus, if our salvation, think back to your personal salvation, when God changed, transformed your heart to where you now desired, you now had a, a desire for faith, you used to not pay attention or you used to think that you were, you were your own savior by way of you were doing enough good works that God would be pleased and say, yeah, you're cool, Nick. Come on over and hang out with me for the rest of eternity. Uh, yeah, when that, when that got changed and you had a right thinking, you had a desire for God. This is, this is supposed to be the starting point for our framework of thinking. When we go out in our week, we are supposed to go out as Christians that have the mindset of now we have on our minds what God has done. We work out our week out of gratitude. That's as we approach our week and the challenges in our week, God has done the work of salvation. Everything else comes as a gratitude, or at least it should come through a gracious heart, saying we are, we are filled with gratitude for what you have done. Well, what about Christians? Remember I told you we had Adam and Eve, new creation. Then we have God uh, birthing a nation. That's where we are right now in Exodus. Remember, can you, do you remember any scripture in the New Testament that talks about we are a new creation? Yeah, we are a, a new creation. What has God done to memorialize in our time frame this truth of a new creation? For the, the, the Jews, for the Israelites, the Hebrews, those are all synonyms for the same entity, that nation, they had a calendar year changed. What, did, what do we see with Christians? We see... Resurrection Sunday, we see the work of what Jesus Christ has done in salvation. He died, and through his death, we are made new. He has paid the punishment, the penalty that we deserve to pay. And, he, and through that, we have a, a resurrection or a making of a, of a life again. A, a new creation is being, that work is done, but it's now on a creation cycle. The creation cycle is a weekly cycle. Every week, Christians are reminded of what God has done. Not, it doesn't occur just on a, an annual calendar. I find it fascinating. The annual calendar that we oftentimes use with Christmas and, and Easter and whatnot, it's not called for in the, in the Bible. That's our own making. Amen. The calendar, that God, the, the time increment that God uses with Christians as he reduces it all the way back down to what he did in the beginning with the creation mandate. Every seven days we are reminded of because we come here as a people. Oh, God, what you have done. Thank you for your salvation that you have done through your son. We see that Resurrection Sunday isn't Easter Sunday which is a pagan word that we still incorporate in it. Resurrection Sunday is every Sunday 
is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday we come reminded of what God done, has done. We get our memories renewed once again. We have our attitudes made right. We have right thinking. What is the birth that came out of Resurrection Sunday? It's the birth of the church. Think about that, church. When you look at what God is doing with the Israelites and you think, oh, well, he's birthing a nation. Oh, he birthed the church. He gave birth to the church. He brought together the people of God in the, in the understanding of what the church is through the, the death and resurrection of his son. And it's a beautiful picture that we are reminded of, of weekly as Christians. So don't think that this, this intrusion, as, I, as I'm playfully using by God to bring about this salvation in the Israelites' life is, is and by changing the, their calendar, is unique to the Old Testament saints. It is absolutely embedded in what we are doing as Christians. But let's first go back. Let's go back and examine. I've kind of got ahead of myself in talking about uh, uh, the, the new covenant that we all are a part of the, and the, the meal. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's take a look first at the, the first meal and see if we can't see connections here from what their first meal they're getting ready they don't even know the the name of it yet god hasn't shared it with them he's just giving instructions we know it as the passover in fact in some of your categories in your bible excuse me the subheadings you might see it starts chapter 12 with the word the passover um right now let's study that passover as it's in its most basic form i don't want to get ahead the reason why we only did six verses is because I didn't want us to go through this so quickly that we miss major connections, major points on the plan of salvation that we can look at and go, oh, I, I didn't make that connection before. This now has more significance now that I've got it placed on, on God's plan. I know where it lands. So we look at the second point we're looking at, a new meal to symbolize the singularity of people and sacrifice. We're looking at singularity of people and sacrifice. And in particular, we're looking at a lamb to be consumed for singular significance. So let's take a look at that. Exodus 12, 3 through 4. And by the way, um, over half of the sermon has been preached. <laughs> so some of you who are new and you're wondering, oh my gosh, I'm not getting out of here till noon or 1. Hang on. We'll move a little more quickly here. So Exodus 12, 3 through 4 says this. Tell all the congregation, uh, first time God uses that word in his, in his uh, revealing of, of what he's doing in history. You see how the significance of that word? He's calling them a congregation. He's saying, I'm going to have you do this meal by families, but I see, and you need to recognize you are one. So we start to see the oneness occurring. Tell all the congregation of Israel... That on the tenth day, oh my goodness, the speculation by the theologians on what this, the reason for the tenth day, we, I, I, I don't want to go into all of them. I'll just say that we, a reminder that, the, that ten is the number of completion. I think it's the safest to say that he uses the tenth day as a, as a starting point for this process to remind them that this is the beginning of the end or the beginning of the completion. It's a beautiful picture. So we continue. That on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for, for a household. So we see that whole families lived in these households. So we've got one lamb per household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, it's not that it can't afford it. It's too big to eat. We're going to see here in a, in a moment that there, the significance of making sure all the lamb is eaten. So when it's dealing with too small, it's not like 
Um, it, the, the, the family can't afford the lamb. The, the family can't consume the lamb. So let's continue on. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to, to what each can eat. All right, before I end it, I got to talk about the word eat because it has really cool implications. Think back to the garden. There is a major problem that occurs with eating. Take apple or whatever fruit you, you believe it to be. I think apple is a nice way of metaphorically speaking about it. We don't know what the fruit was. Take fruit from tree without with the tree that God said don't take. Look at it. Mm, looks great. Eat. Mm, tell husband. Looks great too. Mm, he eats. Now we're all in trouble. Now we have the fall of mankind. And it came through eating. What do we see here? What is the significance that we may have missed? God is using the eating process, something they did out of the presence of God. And now he's saying, I am communing with you in your presence. I am. And I'm going to use the act that brought separation to now bring communion, to bring a restoring. When, you know, sometimes we sit there, and I've said this from the pulpit even, you know, eating food with somebody. I like when I go out and talk to people, if there's somebody new in the congregation, I like to either go and have coffee with them or, or have them over for a meal or go share a meal somewhere, or whatever it happens to be. There's something divine that happens, and it's hard to put your finger on it. Well, it's interesting. When you eat with somebody, you feel as though you are in communion with them. You are sharing something with them. You're sharing a meal. But it's so much grander than that. God is using this act of eating now to say, this represents my communion with you. The new work I'm doing with you, the new work I'm doing in you, is to restore you back to me. So let me start with uh, verse 4 again so we we grasp it. And if the... And if this household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall, you shall make your count for the lamb. All right, here's the principle, and this isn't mine. There was a, a theologian much more, much grander in, in being able to articulate this so concisely. He says this, everyone had to eat of the meat and all the meat had to be eaten. That's what those two verses mean. Everyone had to eat of the meat. You all had to participate. You all had to partake. And it all had to be uh, consumed. And, and we talked about how if you were a small family, that's why you would join yourself. You would commune with another family that ate of the lamb that would be able to share with you. There is The significance of this is there's to be no opportunity for this meal to be perverted. The significance of this meal to be perverted not a big fan of leftovers. You guys might be bigger fans of leftovers. I drive my wife crazy because I don't really like leftovers. Hard to get a second meal out of a, of a meal with me sometimes. I just, I don't know. Anyway, God wants to make sure no leftovers. You may not consume this for any other reason. You may not connect this meal in your minds with any other meal because that would be to pervert it. This meal is exclusively or singularly tied to what I am doing in salvation or the exodus here. So he makes that. That's why you see that, that, that those verses become so significant because they raise our understanding of what God is doing there. This will be a meal of singular significance pointing to God's work and restoring his relationship with this select group of people. They're now, an, an, a, they are becoming, they're being birthed into a nation. 
They had this communion of God. But we also see something else happening. This meal allows Israel to experience the reality and the cost of God's saving grace. And you go, huh? Did you see that in that verse? No, but fortunately we got verse 5 and 6. We move. We're going to see, and we're going to start to see what's the cost of all of us participating in this meal and being communed or being brought into communion is a more proper way of saying it with God. So let's take a look at a singular significant lamb, one without imperfection. Without imperfection. Exodus 12, 5 through 6. Your, your lamb shall be without blemish. In other words, your lamb shall, you've got to make sure that there is no imperfection in this lamb. No visible defect. When I say visible, that, that's visible to us. It needs to be studied. We need to make sure that the, the animal that you give for sacrifice, this lamb or, or goat you're going to see here, this sheep or goat, is, has got to be without blemish. So what's, what's the significance of the, it must be without a blemish? Well, let me give you four negatives of what it means to be blemished in their understanding, and really, we can understand this quite easily, and then I'll give you the positive. Sometimes it's easy to know the negative in order to help shape your mind on what the positive is first. So let's take a look at this. A blemished or imperfect sacrifice was a sacrifice that emphasized its flawed state. When we think about Jesus Christ as as a sacrifice, he has no flaw. He has no imperfection. He will make God is creating something. God is creating the, the theological word is an antitype. It's a less of a type that will point to the type. That's a theological word, which means a greater, fuller understanding. So he's using this animal and the perfection as visually capable of seeing. It's not perfect. It dies, but it's what it represents. It represents perfection. So um, when you have imperfect, imperfect, you're actually emphasizing the flawed state. God doesn't want that emphasized in this meal. Number two, a blemished or imperfect sacrifice was a sacrifice that was less valuable to the giver and the receiver. Are you really going to give a gift of whatever it is, an anniversary gift, a, a birthday gift, some gift to somebody, and you're going to give it to them as flawed? Are you, would you not be feeling the shame of that or, and know that they would look at you like, really? That, that's my value to you? There is, there is something represented in a gift. And trust me, husbands, you learn, I learned this very quickly. You don't take time to think about the gift you're giving. The gift has less value. There is significance to this, this perfected gift or this perfect gift. Otherwise, there is less value to it. And God wants to make sure that we understand the significance of the value of this, of this particular uh, gift, this, this particular sacrificial lamb. And then uh, and point number three, a blemished or imperfect sacrifice was a sacrifice that was tainted or corrupted by something. They didn't know what. They, they said, okay, we've got something that is, we can see the visual defect. It's been corrupted by something. We don't know what it is. Now, we're New Testament believers. We're New Covenant believers. We know that the point there was sin. They didn't know that. They just knew that it was imperfect. It was less. And so God said, do not do that. It sends the wrong signal. And lastly, unblemished or imperfect sacrifice was a sacrifice that was unable to pay the debt that was owed. It can't possibly pay the debt because it's defective in some way. And the defectiveness is the value of it. You need a perfect gift 
a perfect sacrifice to pay perfectly for the, for the sins that are, are, have brought about the injury to God's name, a perfect being. How does an imperfect being pay the price that is owed to an eternal, perfectly holy God? None of us could ever pay that because we are all stained, corrupted, flawed in our state. We all have that stain of sin. Even as believers, God allows us in the sanctification process to recognize we're still stained. We're no longer held legally uh, uh, to fulfill the penalty of that stain. That was accomplished by Jesus Christ. But we still are working out our salvation, not as a legal sense, but as a practical sense. The stain is being changed and brought into lighter and lighter capabilities of being seen because we are being changed more and more into the glory, the image of what God has designed us for to be. Well, let me give one positive. The positive is this. The unblemished lamb that was to be slaughtered was the picture of being acceptable to God it could meet the sacrifice. That was the picture of what, who God, excuse me, who Jesus Christ was as the lamb. Let's, let's bear this out as we end our time together. I'm just going to read to you the, the verses. You can try and get there if you'd like, or you can just sit back or make notation in your notes because I am going to move with some swiftness. Genesis 22, 8. The patriarch, first patriarch, three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is number one. God called Abraham out of the, the pagan nations and said, You're going to be a, 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 I'm going to make you into a nation, and this is how I'm going to bring about salvation to the world. He says at one point to, to Abraham, I, I want you to take Isaac up onto Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him. God is testing Abraham. Does he want him to kill the human being? All, all Abraham knows is it sounds like that. I'm just obeying what God told me to do. And yet, listen to what Abraham believes in his theology and his understanding of God as providing an ultimate sacrifice. God has told Abraham, your son, go take, go sacrifice unto me on the top of this mountain. And then we see in, in Genesis 22, 8, Abraham said, this is because Isaac looked around and said, hey, dad, uh, it's you and me. I got a whole bunch of wood. We got fire and we have no sacrifice. I know we're going to sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? Listen to what Abraham says to his son. What a, a strange day for us to read this verse on Father's Day. What a difficult time this must have been comprehending this at, at Abraham's level, at Isaac's level, father and son. And yet, we, we, Scripture bears out, they both, by way of the Holy Spirit, grasp what God is doing. But let's see how how. It's worded by Abraham and him grasping what God is doing. Abraham says, in other words to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Abraham doesn't know how it's going to take place. God hasn't revealed it to him yet. But he knows God is going to provide the lamb. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ, who he ultimately is. 
And we're going to bear that out. Let's, let's see how Scripture unfolds this so we can understand it. Isaiah 53, this is the prophet Isaiah 53, 7. He's talking about the suffering servant. We know that the suffering servant is the picture of Jesus Christ. That's the person represented from this understanding of this, or this concept of this suffering servant. He says this. This is uh, Isaiah. He was, uh, this is Isaiah uh, writing down what God has inspired him by the uh, Holy Spirit to write down. He, speaking of the suffering servant or speaking of Jesus, was oppressed. He was afflicted. Interesting. What are we watching in this physical uh, uh, exodus? We're watching the people of God be afflicted. Now we're watching the representative who will be the lamb who will pay the price for the people. He also is afflicted, just like Israel was in the, in the Old Testament. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And we start to see God reveal, oh, this, this, this suffering servant is the lamb. I haven't told you yet, people. This is God saying this. I'm, I'm being a little playful here. Who this is? You just need to know that the suffering servant comes as a lamb, as, as one that I will sacrifice. And then we get to, to John 125, excuse me, 129. John 129 and the Gospel of John. This is referencing John the Baptist. He says this. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, listen how he identifies him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We've moved from the implicit to the explicit. John the Baptist lets all of us as partakers of the new covenant know quite clearly Jesus Christ is the lamb all the way back in the picture with Isaac, excuse me, yes, with Isaac that predates the Exodus into the Passover supper and the actual Passover. He's the lamb there and he is the lamb ultimately that takes away the sins of the world through his death. And lastly, we see 1 Peter 1.18. It says this, and this is Peter talking to the, the, uh, the church as a whole. Knowing that you were ransomed, church, we were ransomed. We were, we were set free by some price, by some, something took place. There was a transfer. And when you have a ransom paid, it, it gets paid and the person goes free. I'm thinking of law enforcement. It's, a, it's an easy concept for me. Well, here, if you take it in this understanding, in order to be ransomed, you have to, there has to be a price paid so someone can be freed. And he's talking again to the church, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. In verse 19, and he makes it quite clear, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. Or spot, the first lamb ever, and the only lamb ever capable of being the sacrifice, because he is the only human being that has ever lived that has not sinned. Sin is the blemish. Therefore, only Jesus Christ could be the one that brings about our salvation. Hopefully, we grasp that. We get it, that our debt is paid in full because we have the first time forever a sacrifice that can pay it in full, an unstained sacrifice. No other atonement will suffice. I'm going to leave you with this thought because it's, an, it's, a, 
It's one that we slip into in our week. We, we somehow start to become the atonement for our evils. And what I mean by that, there are times in our week when we try and do good to pay for our bad earlier in the week. And we start to think of, if I do enough good, then God will be pleased. We slip into this performance. We become the sacrificial lamb. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Don't fall into that trap. If you are a Christian and you see someone falling into that, help them realize there is only one atonement. And that atonement came through Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. He was the perfect, and he accomplished it so that even though we sin, we need only go to our true Savior who has made way by way of his atonement. And he accepts our, our pleas for forgiveness, and he forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Let us remember, I'll leave you with the takeaway again, God prepares us for the journey of salvation by memorializing his saving grace in time and allowing us to experience the reality and the cost of it through a meal. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, even the cost is realized to us. When, you, when it says that the, the lamb was to be kept for four days, there would be the, the caring for the lamb. There would be the protecting of the lamb. There would be the bonding to the lamb in a way that you start to realize that this little lamb was going to be killed because of, of the sins of the people of Israel. And by that understanding, the cost was made more precious as there were four days of caring for that sacrifice. And now, Father, we have the blessing of the truths revealed in your word. We have the whole New Testament to understand the precious sacrifice of our Savior, the work of Jesus Christ. He was fully human and fully God, something difficult for our minds to to understand. But if we can take time to focus on his humanity, we pray, Lord, that you would use that to cause us to understand more deeply the cost that he paid that we might have salvation. It's in Christ's precious name that we prayed. We, we pray. Amen.